I'm going to open some prayer, and then we'll get started, and I'll introduce what we're going to be talking about for the next three weeks. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to care for one another, Lord. Thank you that we have opportunities at Lakeside to care tangibly for one another through things like the Benevolent Fund and the Widow's Workday Ministry, and I pray, Lord, that there are plenty of hands for the labor that need to be done on November 11th. And Lord, I thank you also that we can lift one another up in prayer, and that's what we do this morning. Lord, we spent time in our groups in prayer, and we all shared prayer requests, and I know the needs are many in this class. We also pray for our brother Willie Masonette, who's facing such difficulties, Lord, to lose one foot, and now uh, it appears that he's going to lose the other. Lord, I pray that you would encourage him and strengthen him in this time. I pray for wisdom for the doctors to know exactly what needs to be done. And I pray for his wife, Patricia, and his children, Grace and Joe and Nate, Lord, and his mom, Ruth, and his sister, Naomi, and the rest of his family. I I just pray that you'll comfort them in what is just a grueling season of life. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we trust you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you last week, quite some time ago, back in the beginning of the, I guess the end of summer, beginning of fall, uh, Spencer King had reached out to me to see if I would be willing to teach. At the time, he presented it something along the lines or similar to what I'd done at summer camp in the community fellowship group, because they were going to be devoting the community fellowship group this fall to topics that were geared towards young people, high schoolers, and things like that. And so I agreed after a while to teach, and then I sort of forgot about it. And then turns out that I was scheduled not to teach one time. They t- scheduled me to teach three times. So starting today and then next week and then the week after, I'm teaching in the community fellowship class. And their topic that they're going on in general is dealing with the pressures of the culture. So they've dealt with a variety of topics. All of the messages are online if you ever wanted to listen to them. But the topics that were given to me were were threefold. And again, I said I would teach and then I didn't think about it and then saw the topics and then I had to ask somebody what do the topics mean and they explained it to me. And so it's not exactly what I was doing at summer camp, but I think it'll be profitable. So I was given three topics. One was dealing with fear. We sort of live in a culture of fear where people fear everything. So how do we navigate worldly fear versus biblical view of fear? Fearing God versus fearing everything else. And then the second topic was along the lines of dealing with how do we walk by faith and not just by sight? How do we navigate uncertainty when we don't know everything? How do we keep pressing forward? And then finally, the issue is... The third topic that I'm supposed to deal with has to do with the fact that the culture is not content for us to exist. The culture wants us to follow them. So this idea of tolerance is a misnomer. They don't want tolerance. They want conformity, and they want us to come along with them. How, as Christians, do we resist that temptation? So those were the three topics I was given, and I know what I'm going to say on the first one because I just taught it before you came in here. The second two, I still don't know what I'm going to say, so I'll be working on it, but The reality is with my schedule, I don't have time to study multiple times per week because of all the other things that I'm doing. And so what I thought and what I said last week and what I am going to do 
is I'm going to teach those same messages, but they fit, I think, with a lot of what we're talking about in Second Peter. In the sense of this, Second Peter is dealing with the false teachers that would take us away from good doctrine and would lead us into error. There's a sense in which, although it's, it's just an analogy, that's exactly what the culture is doing to us. The culture is spewing out a message to us and stimulating in us fleshly things so that we'll follow the culture rather than following the Lord. And just as false teachers make up good-sounding stories to get a following to lead people astray, that's what the broader culture does in a variety of areas And they try and lead us astray. So because I see parallels, even though it's a slightly different context, I thought I will teach the messages, although I'll probably teach it a little bit differently here. And so the issue that we will be facing this morning is the issue of fear. And it's interesting because at the end of the day, the Bible makes it clear we're supposed to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Now, if you summarize and think through that, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, that really has to do with how we interpret and view everything. Are we going to think through things biblically? Are we going to think through things through the concerns and the prism of daily concerns and cares? And that really becomes the issue, is how are we going to think? The Bible makes it clear that the very first temptation was Satan tempting Eve in the garden. And he did a couple things. One, and we've talked about it a lot because it impacts false teachers. One is he questioned God's word. Did God really say? And Eve said, well, God said, and we would die. And you surely will not die. But there's a second component of this, and it's not changing the nature of his temptation, but what he said was, God knows that when you take and eat of it, you'll know in essence what he knows. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He was appealing to Eve's intellect, her mind, such that in Genesis 3, 6, says when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the light to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took. In other words, that idea that her thinking could be stimulated by this, appealed to her. So his first victory in sin was appealing in part, questioning God's word, but also appealing to human vanity, the human mind, the human desire to know, and that pride. And that's still what's going on today. So as we talk about this issue of fear, and I'm going to address a few specific things, really it comes down to how we think. Now, I don't necessarily normally do this because when I'm engaging and I'm talking through things, I tend to like to stay on track, but I'm going to ask a few questions today. And I'm going to ask you this. What are people afraid of? What do people fear in America? The future? Okay, they're afraid of what's coming up. Death. Look around, this class is a lot older than the first class, and death is closer. I'm sorry, what was the next? Climate change. Climate change. Mm-hmm. Financial. Financial. Money, money, money. All those things, I'm sorry? 
What's that? The wars. Wars. Post world. What's that? World. A world that doesn't even pay any attention to what we think, doesn't think like we do. All those things really are excellent answers because that is what's going on. Now, on the one hand, and I'm going to talk about this, we've been covering Second Peter, and one of the things I really stress from Second Peter is the very beginning. God, through His divine power, has given us all we need for life and godliness, in part through His precious and magnificent promises. So we already understand we can do this. And the issue and everything about fear is really a matter of controlling your thinking, controlling your mind, controlling self-control over what's going on inside your head because that's where fear comes from, is our rumblings and thinkings. Fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. So God's already given us everything we need to think rightly. God's already given us everything we need in His Word through His Spirit that dwells within us. We can do this. But the reality is we live in a culture that stimulates fear. And it's ironic. And you mentioned a post-Christian culture. It is interesting how things have drastically shifted. But if I were to ask somebody to pull out a piece of currency, be it a penny or a dime or a nickel or a quarter or a coin-shaped dollar or a dollar bill or a five or a ten or a twenty or a hundred. There are four words written on every single piece of currency. In God we trust. So you would think, since we must believe it because it's in our pockets and it's in our money, but we know America doesn't trust in God. And so that's why I think Fear is rampant, it encapsulates everything because we don't trust God. But the problem is, even as believers, we find ourselves, if we're not careful, living at moments as though we don't trust God. As I think about things, America is driven by consumption. But it's not just America. Now, you've got to be careful because I'm going to show you scriptures that say the issues of the heart have been the same forever. I'll allude to it in a minute, but there was... Way back in the day, the Israelites were given the Ten Commandments that included don't covet and don't steal, in part because human hearts always want more and more and more. But in our culture, everything is about consumption or preservation. What do I mean by that? Get more stuff. Get more stuff. Get more stuff. Well, I've got more stuff. Protect your stuff. Protect your stuff. Protect your stuff. That becomes everything. Then you add to it that our health is involved. And what's the goal of everybody? Live forever. Now, we know better than that, but we don't live that way. So in America, so much is driven by greed and fear. Greed, I want more, more, more. Fear is either I won't get the more, 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 or I've got it, I'm going to lose it. Got to put it in storage. Just read an article of a guy that they found an old DeLorean in a barn that had hardly any miles on it, and the guy had bought it, and it was just sitting there collecting rat poop, or mice poop for years. And after about 10 years of it doing that, he wondered should he have bought it, but he never got rid of it, and it just sat there. That, that describes a lot of hoarding in America. 
But I did looked up some surveys because I can see around me that I see fear. But if you read anything, we are in an epidemic crisis of anxiety and fear. And it's all about the future. Now, there's fear about today, but a lot of it is about what's going to happen tomorrow. Am I going to lose what I have today? Is what I have today going to go away? Am I going to be able to get tomorrow what I don't have today? I looked at a couple areas. One was the American Psychiatric Association had a survey this year of the things that Americans are anxious about. And depending on when you read, you can read and there can be differences in fear and anxiety, but everything that I'm reading, fear and anxiety are really synonymous in terms of how we're defining them. There are circumstances where fear and anxiety aren't synonymous. They are for purposes of this as I've thought it through. So here's the results. 70% of Americans are anxious, you could say fearful, about keeping themselves or their families safe. 68 percent were anxious about keeping their identity safe, which is really just a way of saying, if people steal my identity, they steal my money. 66% were anxious about their health. 65% were anxious about paying bills and expenses. 59% were anxious about the impact of climate change on the planet. I could keep going, but you see the point. Americans are living in fear. I didn't realize it until I started studying to prepare this. Chapman University, which is in Orange County, California, apparently does an annual fear survey. And they did 2023. And they do like 97 categories. 97 categories that you could go through that they list all the percentages of Americans that fear what they fear. 97 is the least feared as animals, dogs, rats, and etc. You put rats on the list, it goes way high for me, but um, that's another story. But I have the top of their list. And the top of their list is very similar to the other fears. So what is the top thing that they're afraid of? It's interesting, but apparently the top fear this year is corrupt government officials. Now, I think that's because corrupt government officials can take our stuff or they can imprison us. The next, number two on their list, the fear of economic and financial collapse, which is money. Number three, and it was talked in our discussion, was wars. It was actually Russia using a nuclear weapon and then us being involved in America over war. Next, the next two, a fear that people I love will become seriously ill or a fear that people I love will die. Those are the next two. And in the top 20, the last one was global warming. Global warming's everywhere. So it made the list. Don't get me wrong. But as I looked through those lists of fears, you could actually summarize them into three categories. There was a fear of war. There was a fear of losing our health and our life. And then there was the economic fears. And the reality is war is both of those. Why don't people like wars? Because people die in wars. And what are Americans concerned about? Not that Hamas is going to come over and attack us right now or that Russia is going to invade us like they did Ukraine. The fear for us is we're spending all our money on their wars. What's going to happen to us? 
or with Israel that maybe we do get dragged into the war because maybe Iran does something crazy with Hezbollah from Lebanon and the next thing you know, we're fighting alongside Israel. But the reality is all those things come down to this. It's a fear of losing my stuff or not having stuff, economic, or a fear of death. I think the reality is people don't really fear somebody becoming sick in and of itself. They fear somebody becoming sick because if you're sick, you're going to die. So it really comes down to a fear of losing stuff or not having stuff, economics, or a fear of death. And I realize that those fears aren't just out there in the world. They're in the church. So we have to be careful to make sure, particularly where we are in life, we have to be careful that we don't think of these things like the world does. Because the world, if we're not careful, can make us fearful. We already have that ability within our own hearts, but we can start worried about, will I get my stuff? What happens to Social Security? What happens to my retirement funds? What happens to my nest egg? Or what happens to my health? Am I going to overcome this cancer? What is this feeling? Is it something worse than what I think it is? Am I on the way out the door, so to speak? So the Bible deals with life as it is. Sin in the world has corrupted things. It has messed things up. We're not immune from all of the problems out there. Christians have inflation just like everybody else. I couldn't believe the other day, I remember looking in the store and there was a bottle of Diet Coke, two liter soda, used to be 99 cents. $3.50 for a two liter bottle of soda. Publix doesn't have a special price for Christians. So I bought Publix brand for a dollar and a quarter. But the point is, all these issues of life affect us. We have the same concerns. We just have to approach it biblically because we, of all people, should be examples not going along with everybody else in fear. We shouldn't fear the government, corrupt or otherwise. We shouldn't fear economic collapse. We shouldn't fear becoming ill or dying. So as I walked through this idea, as I thought it through, since I could take all of these various fears and really distill them down to either my money or my life, I came up with some principles, I think, that are biblical for overcoming a culture of fear. So that we're not like everyone else, so that we live differently. So there's three principles for overcoming a culture of fear. And the first is this. You need to make sure money is not an idol. You need to make sure money is not an idol. Now this is challenging. Because in and of itself, money is just a tool. We live in America in a capitalist system. Money purchases goods. And the reality is that's been the case for most of human history. That was the case in the time of the Bible. That was the case prior to that. Even in times where societies were agrarian, there were buying and trading. But for Americans today, we are in a period of economic turmoil. 
what are some of the things, and I already mentioned my expensive Diet Coke, but what are some of the things that Americans are worried about right now from an economic standpoint? What's that? Groceries. That's it. Costs a lot. Inflation. Gas prices. Through the roof. Utilities. Every insurance. All the prices are rising. Everything costs more. Debt's a major issue right now. Perhaps not for the people in this room, but our government has taken on so much debt, it's staggering. I was just reading that the deficit, I think it was the deficit, not the debt, the deficit in one year doubled because of the price of interest payments. Because interest rates have gone up and it's just that much less. There are real things from an economic standpoint that cause insecurity. We, we buy the same gas as everyone else. We buy at the same grocery stores. Our government is the one that's piling on the debt and at some point they're going to ask us to pay for it. Many in this room are retired. There's the issue of what happens if everything collapses and there goes the retirement nest egg. Others are still working. What happens if the jobs go away? Can I pay for all the things that I have to pay for? Can I meet my monthly expenses? Christmas is around the corner. Can I buy people presents? So there's a sense in which we can understand where the anxiety and fear comes from. Everybody needs these things. We don't want to do without these things. Whatever lifestyle we're at, we don't want to go farther down the ladder. We don't want to be homeless. But the reality is we have to always be mindful whatever stage we are in life, whether we're at the beginning of the work life or at the very end, we always have to keep money in perspective. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and money. And it's possible even for Christians to get this out of balance. Where do you find your security? Is it your bank account? If you see this portfolio go down X percent, does it cause you to panic? Much of the fear gripping America can be traced to the fact that most people don't feel like they have enough. And those that do have enough are worried that tomorrow it won't be enough. Because the dollars I have today, if inflation keeps going up, are worth less and less and less. I never finished my degree, but I was a finance major and figuring out the present value of money and the future value of money, you can see the effect of inflation of, I've got enough, oops, tomorrow's different, now I don't. Inevitably, whenever money is tight, people start looking for ways to finagle and get more. The Bible says those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. That's in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. I was just reading snippets of it. So we have to be careful that our security is not found in our economic well-being because our economic well-being can come and go. One of the great accounts of economic catastrophe, something that was encouraging to me when I went through a bewildering period, Debbie and I went through a bewildering period of economic setback is the book of Job. 
Job was a righteous man, and I'm not claiming to be a righteous man, but if you look at the account in Job, he was a righteous man, and bit by bit, he lost everything, and he didn't do anything wrong. Wasn't bad planning, wasn't risky investments. He didn't do anything wrong, but all of his wealth was gone. Couldn't imagine what that would be like if you were that wealthy. Picture the Elon Musks of our area with... $200 billion and suddenly, boop, nothing. So we can understand that devastation and loss is possible. It even happens to godly people. But again, it's an issue of the heart. And it's an issue of trusting the Lord. We have to make sure that we don't find our peace in our checking account or our stock portfolio because that can disappear tomorrow. And if it does, God is still on his throne and we'll still be okay. I always have to be careful with something like this because this isn't some type of fatalistic thing. The Bible commends going to work and earning money. Certainly that's the way the world works, but that's the way the church is supposed to work. Second Thessalonians 3, 10 and 12, that's where the Apostle Paul says, if they won't work, they shouldn't eat. They should work. So there were some people that weren't working, they were just being lazy, feeding off others. He says, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So there's Nothing wrong with being mindful and taking care of your needs. It's commended by God. Certainly to provide for your family. 1 Timothy 5.8, someone that doesn't care for his own household has denied the faith. But we can't let those good biblical principles that say work, try and provide for yourself, overwhelm us to the point that we become consumed by that issue. If there are struggles financially, we can't let it consume us such that we are so fearful we can't live for the Lord. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says a lot about this. And I'm going to read some verses out of order. But in Matthew chapter 6, 31 to 34, Jesus said this, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That is so critical for us, because when you read the news, the negative issues about the economy are everywhere. I know what the inflation things are because every time there's a new report, it's all over the news. I know what the stock market is doing because every day it's on the news. They're just bombarding you. It's going down. We know when gas prices are going through the roof because the news is projecting and this is the average price of gas and look out, here's what's happening. Certainly we experience all these things in and of ourselves, but we're bombarded by the news that's putting it in front of us and saying the sky is falling. Why do I know that the deficit doubled in one year because of interest rates? Because I read the news. It's designed to get you worked up. And guess what's going to happen next year 
in America with that time of year. It's an election. Aren't you looking forward to it? All of the advertisements designed to get you to vote for one candidate by telling you if you don't, the sky will fall and it will collapse and it will all be over. Now, I have horses in the race that I want to win, so to speak. But it doesn't matter who wins. God raises up kings and he takes down kings. It doesn't matter the health of the economy of America. I care and I want it to do good, but God is sovereign over all those things. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus is promising us, look, God knows you need the necessities of life. The Gentiles are all running after those things. You don't focus on those things. You don't focus on the money and the economics. You focus on godliness. God will take care of the rest. And when it comes to tomorrow, don't worry about that. I don't know how many times during a day I quote to myself, don't worry about tomorrow. Why do I quote that? Because I'm worried about tomorrow. So we need to be careful and to be mindful that the world is trying to distract us and lead us astray. The news is trying to get us worked up. Politicians are trying to get us worked up. Everybody wants us storming the gates with pitchforks and torches because we're so angry and we're so afraid. Don't believe it. Don't do it. If you have enough, praise the Lord. According to 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Verse 7 says we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it either. And if God by chance has blessed you with things, be careful that you don't trust in those things. Jesus told the story about a man who built bigger barns. That was alluded to. I got all this stuff. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns so I can hold more stuff. And God said to that person, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you and then who's going to have your stuff? Paraphrasing. Verse 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Don't ever let your comfort and ease be based on your economic situation. Don't fear losing. Don't fear not having. Trust in the Lord. Don't let money be an idol. Second principle is this, for overcoming the culture of fear, you need to have a biblical view of health and well-being and death. You need to have a biblical view of health and well-being and death. America's obsessed with self. If you start thinking through the ads that are all around you, a great many of them have to do with you. You can look better. You'll feel better. You take this medicine. This is the key to life. Oh, you were so sad. We got a medicine that will take care of that. The point is not to criticize any particular drug or pharmaceutical. The issue is what messages we're being bombarded with. You need to join this plan. You need to watch out for this. You need to avoid this. You need to have that. Fascinating, just in my lifetime, watching the different, this is good for you, that's bad for you. And then wait a year, oh, we were just kidding. That's actually good for you. This is bad for you. And then you wait a few more years, they're both bad for you, they're all going to kill you. I can tell you everything is going to kill you because we're all going to die. But it goes on and on such that if we're not careful, we can focus more on ourselves and our well-being and avoiding death than we 
focus on living for the Lord. Now, I want to be clear. There's nothing unbiblical about taking steps to protect your health, taking steps to avoid being sick, or when you are sick, taking steps to alleviate your suffering. It's interesting when you read through the portions of the Old Testament like Leviticus, and some of them are very hard to get through, but you see all these laws dealing with hygiene and sanitation. Well, if it's this kind of leprosy, test it because it could be contagious and you might have to isolate someone. So this person's going in quarantine. But if it's this kind, then no, it's okay. They can still interact. And there's all kinds of those for various things. There's even things about buildings. Okay, you've got a growth of this type on the walls. Well, you bring in the priest and they scrape it. And if this happens, then it's okay. You'll be fine. If that happens, eventually you may have to tear down the building. Why? Because it's stopping the spread of disease on a wider level. Alleviating disease is not a problem or else Jesus wouldn't have had a healing ministry. He went around and cared for and healed because he had compassion on human suffering. One of the effects of the fall is that our bodies break down. There's nothing wrong with alleviating the pain and suffering. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, to don't just drink water, take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. In other words, it can alleviate suffering. So in what I'm saying, don't hear me say, well, we're supposed to be stoic and suck it up and just take what comes. No, you can take medicine. You can do those things. But we can't be so obsessed with those things that that becomes all we think about. We can go to doctors. We can take medicines. We can do what we can to make ourselves as healthy as possible, but the end goal of our life is not pristine health and well-being. Everything in America right now is built on what's best for you. You should feel better. You should be happy. It's all about you, 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 you. But even our efforts to take care of ourselves are only partially helpful. Also to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, the second part of verse 7 and verse 8, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So in other words, yes, you can to even do some physical exercise, but that only goes so far. That's not the answer. The focus should be on godliness, Again, I won't read it, but Jesus basically was saying to people, look, God provides for the animals. He provides for sparrows. He provides for flowers. You're worth a lot more than that. Trust him. Earlier in Matthew 6, verse 25 to 27, he says, again, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. Is not life more than all those things? Verse 27, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? The point is this, there's nothing wrong with us taking steps to deal with our body, but we can't be so obsessed that we think that's the ultimate issue. Again, don't misunderstand me. Death is a terrible thing. It's horrible. Every one of us has felt the hurt in our heart because a loved one has died. It's a painful thing. It's a terrible thing. Death entering into the world was horrific. I'm always touched, and I allude to it anytime I do a service, 
But Jesus went to the funeral of Lazarus. He was going to call him forth from the grave. He was going to raise him from the dead. And all the people were heartbroken. They were devastated. And Jesus himself, it says, Jesus wept. So again, I'm not saying there's some kind of stoic, we're so tough and death doesn't affect us. No, 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 no. It has the impact on us. Sorrow and grief are real, but we have to understand that we have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The point for us is that we can't live like the rest of the world. Debbie and I are not super anything, but when she had breast cancer back in 2011, treatments carrying over into 2012, it was very serious. There were a lot of negative things. You don't want to be at an oncologist and a high number is really bad and the oncologist say, this is the second highest number I've ever seen. But as she and I talked about it, we both agreed, what's the worst thing that could happen? We had a little four-year-old. Our other daughters were still at home. What's the worst thing that could happen? She would die. But that's also the best thing that could happen. Because she'd be with Jesus. Be bad for me, be bad for my kids. But biblically, we have to understand that death is not something that we have to fear because we're going to be with Jesus. It's interesting. We live in a culture that's marked by the fear of death. And the scriptures say that that's a tool that Satan uses to keep people in his grip. Jesus has freed us from that fear. But if we're not careful, Satan can put the hook in us. And we have that same fear. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, meaning Jesus. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Meaning Jesus died to break that. Verse 15. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That really describes our culture. Everybody's terrified of dying. Satan has them in the grip of the fear of death and certainly those who aren't believers should fear death but they don't even understand to have the right fear. But as believers, what does the Bible say happens to us at the moment we die? We're with the Lord. I've thought about that many times. One of the differences I can tell from when I was saved and when I wasn't saved. That sounds appealing to me now. It didn't used to. That stuff I wanted to do now, it's like the stuff can wait. I'd, I'd rather be with Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. The thief on the cross who was converted as he was being killed for his crimes cried out to Jesus and Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. I'd much rather be in paradise than Clearwater. Because as pretty as the beaches are, there's not paradise here. So we have to realize as believers, we don't fear death because we are going to be with Jesus. 
the worst thing that could happen in the eyes of the rest of the world is the best thing that could happen to us. And here's the other thing, and this is important. I'm going to have to speed up real quick to get to my last point. Just remember this. God has ordained how many days you're going to live. We look around the room, we're various ages. A lot of us have gray hair, which means we're on the other side of life. Can I tell you, God knows exactly how many days you're going to die. He knows the day that your life is going to end on the earth. If I make it till December 7th, I'll be 57, but I might not make it till tomorrow. God knows. But if God's ordained it, I could live to be as old as Moses and be 120. I don't think that would happen, but hey. The point is this. The scriptures say in Psalm 139, 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. In other words, whatever your name is, you can look in the mirror and see yourself and you could rightly say, God, my days are ordained. Thank you. You don't have to worry about dying. You don't have to worry about things. I know there are Christians who absolutely are terrified Some Christians wouldn't go on a missions trip. Why? Because it's dangerous. It could hurt me. You can't die before it's your time to die. And you can't live beyond your time to live. You can take every vitamin in the world and if God has ordained that tomorrow's your day, you're going to be with him tomorrow. And it'll be better to be with him than to have all the vitamins. So the last point is this, and I'll just summarize it because we're out of time the end of the day, life is not about money or even our physical well-being. We need to fear God more than anything else. That's the third principle for overcoming a culture of fear. We need to fear God more than anything else. In other words, we need to be more consumed with what God thinks and what God wants than anything else. Deuteronomy 13.4 says, You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. That's the teaching over and over in Scripture. Fascinating that King Solomon had a unique perspective in life. He had more wealth than anybody could imagine. I think in his day, his wealth was more than Elon Musk because he had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. And God, through answered prayer, gave him the ability to have more wisdom than anybody else. So he was unbelievably smart And he had unlimited resources. And so according to the book of Ecclesiastes, he used those resources to explore everything. Putting it in the parlance of today, he went back and got multiple advanced degrees in various topics. And then he had five or six different careers exploring every avenue of everything. And he indulged himself in every pleasure, every entertainment, every pursuit that was available. He did it all because he could. And at the end, this is what he says. After sampling everything, after doing everything, after learning all he could learn, after all those experiences, he said this, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. At the end of the day, that should be our paramount concern on a daily basis. God, what do you think? Not living in fear of what does other people think, what's going on. Not even fear of what we think, but focusing on God. What do you have for me?
Matthew 10, 28 to 31, and just summarize, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. That's <laughs> nothing. Fear the one who can kill your body and your soul, which is God. And yet at the same time, he says not one sparrow falls to the ground without God's sovereign ordained purpose. Think about that the next time you pass a dead bird. That bird didn't fall without God's knowing it. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. So the fear of God on the one hand, which is right and good, enables us to live without fear because God's got us all in control. And final verse, and I'll close this with this. I've got several verses, but if you struggle with fear, if you struggle with anxiety, I encourage you, go to the scriptures, read and meditate on Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Not just the command, be anxious for nothing, but in the solution but in everything and by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God. Take your fears, take your anxieties to him. He cares about the birds that are falling. You're of much more value to him. Go to him, talk to him. And if you find yourself being fearful about this world, fearful of the evil that's all around us, I think most of us, when we saw what happened in Israel, we thought, what if it happened in my neighborhood? It's easy to be fearful. Be easy to be fearful of the government that seems to be bigger and everything. All these things seem to be worth fearing. But Psalm 56, 3 and 4. Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4 is what I'll leave you with. It was a song we used to sing in the college ministry in California. But the verse says this, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us believe that. Lord, in our best moments we believe. Help our unbelief when in the moment we do worry, when in the moment we do get fearful. Lord, we're bombarded by messages that stir up our fear, fear of the government, Fear of the other side, fear of economic collapse, fear of financial ruin, fear of physical calamity, fear of death. Lord, help us remember as your children that we don't have to be that way. We have hope because of Christ. Lord, let us put our trust in you because what can mere men do to us? Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you guys, and I will see you, Lord willing, next Sunday morning.